The story started with a tip about the hand sanitizer suspension. Sam Mednick is a journalist who reports on South Sudan. This week, she released the results of an exclusive months-long investigation looking into what she found to be a bungled and corrupted response to COVID-19. It was very eye-opening that this wasn't just about hand sanitizer. There was a lot more that was happening. Sam spoke to people from every corner of South Sudan society. It's the youngest country in the world, only founded in 2011, and has suffered through a devastating civil war for most of the time since. Now, the COVID-19 pandemic has left its people worse off than ever before. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. You may have noticed some of the audio quality in this episode is a little rough, a casualty of remote recording across continents. But I hope you stick through it with us. Sam spent the better part of the past year looking into the relationship between the COVID-19 crisis and corruption in South Sudan. Her investigation has been published by Al Jazeera and The New Humanitarian, a nonprofit news organization founded by the United Nations. I interviewed nearly 30 people over the course of almost 10 months, listening to South Sudanese civilians talk to me about the situation. They said they were tired, that they were fed up, that they wanted things to change. And some of them said they hoped that by telling their story, by talking to me, that that would create a change. One of those people she talked to is Edmund Yakani, an activist and organizer who campaigns against corruption. Every time there is a crisis, the government of South Sudan ignore its citizens and rely on international aid, but does not help its own people. This has made reasonable size of the population across the country fed up. Sam says Edmund is one of the few people willing to speak publicly against what he sees as government mismanagement. And he talked to us about how corruption affects the average South Sudanese person on an average day. He used a hypothetical to illustrate what's happening in his country. If you sample five South Sudanese in any street of any town of South Sudan, you will find two people who are well off. They have the purchasing power to afford three meals per day. They can send their kids to private schools. They can send their kids to private clinics. If you look at their identity, you come to realize they are either ministers at a political level or they are generals in any of the security institutions. And then the other three people... They don't have money in their pockets. They don't have purchasing power. To get three meals per day, they may only end up having one meal. They can't send their kids to private schools. They have to send them to public schools. They can't really afford medical service in private clinics. That will put them in public hospitals or public clinics. And Edmund says these public services just aren't up to standard. The staff there lack the incentive and ability to deliver on their jobs fully. Why? Simply they have gone six months without salaries. Millions of people in South Sudan are forced to survive with limited resources. It's estimated that the civil war we mentioned earlier left nearly 400,000 people dead. 
And it also led to poverty and food insecurity. South Sudan is facing its highest levels of food insecurity and malnutrition since independence 10 years ago. The humanitarian response plan has identified 8.3 million people in urgent need of assistance. Edmund blames those in power, saying the country's wealth, food and services are disproportionately directed to them. Our level of resilience is very weak simply because the resources that we have has been looted. It's been used by few minority who you can describe them as politicians or military generals. And that's why any crisis that happens in the country, we have to go for humanitarian aid. We can't respond. You come to realize this is how high level of malpractice and corruption have affected South Sudan in terms of food security, in terms of poverty. We have a high level of poverty because of malpractices and corruption. And Edmund says any crisis, like the COVID-19 pandemic, for instance, makes the situation even worse. So that brings us back to Sam Mednick. As part of her investigation, she looked at the difference between how the government responded to the pandemic and how the international community did. South Sudan's health sector largely relies on external aid from the international community. So to give you some statistics according to the government budget from 2019, they put in around 2% of the budget towards healthcare. So that comes to just less than $14 million, which was allocated for the health sector. But according to other reports I've seen, only about $3 million made it to the health sector. And if you look at what the international community has put in, I mean, it's hard to know what everyone has put in, but for example, Doctors Without Borders in 2019 put approximately 85 million euros on health. And so that just kind of shows the the contrast. And that's just one organization. Just to summarize those numbers again, South Sudan's government said it would allocate $14 million to the health sector in 2019. In reality, it only spent $3 million. An organization like Doctors Without Borders, for example, dedicated more than $70 million for healthcare in the country. Then 2020, with its whole new range of challenges, required even more international support. The UN called last year for more than $200 million for South Sudan's healthcare system and only received $31 million of that, which was funded. But again, that just speaks to the big gap between what the international community is putting in and what the government itself is putting in. So let's talk about that gap. By the end of your investigation, what had you found? So the first finding was that Some officials involved in the response were allegedly charging for coronavirus tests that were meant to be free, as well as negative test certificates. So at the beginning of the response, if you wanted to travel domestically by air, you would need to have a COVID certificate saying that you were negative. And so some people within the response, I was told from several officials and through seeing text messages, that people were charging to get these negative certificates and charging for people to take the test in the first place. In December, I went to get tested at the main hospital, and the man sitting beside me told me he had just paid money for his test. Mm. And and I said to him, well, you know that they're free. And he said, yeah, I just found that out. But someone told me they could help me, and I paid them. So that was just indicative to me that this was happening, but that this was still ongoing months into the response. So this is a black market for COVID tests that should have been free. Yes. 
Do you know how much the COVID tests were going for? How much were people being charged? According to one text message that I saw between health workers, uh, there were claims that people were charging $400 for a negative certificate and $50 for a test. I heard some other prices for tests that were between $50 and $100 as well. And the next allegation? And the next allegation was the suspension of the hand sanitizer. This had been a tip that the new humanitarian had received, and so we started digging. And a few importers, as well as this government official and some other people, confirmed the government allegedly suspended hand sanitizer imports. While the rest of the world was scrambling to get it, they had suspended it and allowed one local company called Cinco Medical to be the main producer of it, which contributed to limiting supplies and driving up prices. So people were very confused by it. Did that strike anyone as unusual? Did the government explain why those imports were banned? It wasn't something that was widely publicized. It didn't seem like a lot of people knew this was happening. The civilians I spoke to in the country at that time, April, May, said that they were struggling to find hand sanitizer. And there was a report that came out by the Sud Institute, which said that the price of sanitizer in that time grew about tenfold. But not a lot of people knew that the government was doing this. And the people who did know about it, they were surprised. And there was no explanation given. The owner of Cinco Medical, who I spoke to, said that the government was trying to promote domestic business. So by giving them authorization to produce, that the government was trying to fuel local companies. So hand sanitizer imports were effectively banned just as people are scrambling to find hand sanitizer really all over the world. And then the third allegation... The third allegation, millions of dollars went to renovate a coronavirus hospital that was, from what I was told from health officials, was supposed to be the main infectious disease hospital. I had some people who have worked in South Sudan for a long time look over the contracts, and they told me that some of the prices in the contract were inflated. For example, there was, according to these documents, there were $22,500 that was allocated for landscaping and $168,000 for painting. Wow. And these prices, according to these construction experts who I spoke to, said that they were inflated sometimes up to twice the amount that they should have been. On top of that, the hospital itself, when I I went to visit it in in December, I was told by uh, medical professionals that it wasn't up to standard of what an infectious disease hospital should be. So it didn't have enough toilets. It didn't have the right flow with, you know, certain ways you need to come and go in these hospitals. And so they weren't sure exactly what it was supposed to be used for. And at that point, it wasn't being used to treat patients at all. Oh, wow. So it was empty. It was being used for storage. And some people, I think, had maybe made their offices inside it. But it definitely wasn't being used for patient care. Wow. We, of course, can't ignore the fact that these kinds of profiteering schemes popped up all around the world as the pandemic raged on. In Bolivia, the country's health minister has been detained on suspicion of corruption over the alleged purchase of 170 ventilators bought at a cost of $27,000 each. Some in Hungary are alleging that Prime Minister Viktor Orban's government is rife with corruption when it comes to spending pandemic money. Zimbabwe's health minister has been arrested over charges of corruption in the COVID-19 equipment supply case. 
But the situation in South Sudan is unique because it's part of a larger pattern. Edmund told us earlier that this happens anytime South Sudan is in crisis. Sam says the people and aid agencies trying to help them are often caught in the middle, and they can be scared to speak out, scared of retaliation from the government. I spoke to people involved in the response at very high levels, international aid organizations, NGOs, civilians, government officials, civil society, pretty much tried to get an assessment of the situation from every vantage point that I could. And a lot of people are very nervous about speaking. It's very hard when you're trying to report a story when everyone wants to talk, but they don't want to talk at the same time. So many people didn't want to speak on the record, didn't want their names used, even a first name, didn't want any reference to them. Some people would only speak to me once and then decided that it was too risky and they wouldn't speak to me again. Uh, So it it just added a lot of time uh, to trying to uncover the various pieces of the story. So these revelations from your investigation are an indictment against so much of what's going on in South Sudan and an indictment against the government. What has the government said about these allegations and about your investigation? Some government officials I reached out to just didn't respond. So I didn't really, I didn't get a response about the allegations of of the hand sanitizer and aid organizations as well who, who we reached out to. Some of them responded, but others just didn't respond. I did have a long interview on the record with the Undersecretary for the Ministry of Health, Mayen Mashut Achik. Certain allegations, he said, were unfortunate. So there were allegations of aid workers being verbally threatened and told that they would potentially have to leave the country if they didn't do certain things that the health ministry wanted them to do. And he said that those types of things should not be happening. He called the amount of money spent on the hospital excessive and said that hopefully it would be used for another purpose. But a lot of people just did not respond to the requests for comment. So this investigation obviously required a lot of you. What drove you? Why were you passionate about getting this story out? For me personally, it's important for me to keep going back to South Sudan and report and to seek the truth about what's going on. The pandemic has has magnified vulnerabilities, as well as opportunities for corruption and profiteering. And I think it's critical to keep an international spotlight on developments in the country, because sometimes external pressure is, is the only way to hold those in power accountable. Sam's last thought was about external pressure on the government. Edmund Yakani concluded his thoughts with a very similar message. Our political leaders and our public officials need to really stop this practice of malpractices and high level of corruption. He gave some specific examples of steps that he says need to be taken to change South Sudan's political culture. Our anti-corruption commission require political will to deliver them. Our national general auditor need to audit the books of the government to spot out gaps, to spot out malpractices. And in simple terms, ministers, military generals need to control playing with ghost names in the payroll because that's another way of how they're earning income. So, as a civil society activist, my recommendation is that we need to have political will to fight corruption. And if you don't have political will to fight corruption, it will impact on the lives of South Sudanese to the level that you can capitalize the results of corruption, cause the same 
impact on human life as a crime against humanity. And that's The Take. There's so much more to learn from Sam Mednick's investigation. We'll link to her article on aljazeera.com from our Twitter handle. We're at AJ The Take. This episode was produced by Priyanka Tilvey with Amy Walters, Alexandra Locke, Dina Kispe, Ney Alvarez, Nagin Oliay, and me, Malika Bilal. Tom Fenton is our story editor. Alex Roldan is our sound designer. And Stacey Samuel is The Take's executive producer. We'll be back 